Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Kudzu Vine for March 5th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about the show tonight. Uh, From University of Illinois, Springfield, Dr. Isabel Skinner is going to be joining us the first time. We're excited to talk with her because just this past Tuesday, Chicago had a really interesting mayoral race. Um, Normally, we'd probably talk about it on the show, but since we've got a guest from the state of Illinois, we're going to have Dr. Skinner talk to us about it. And then also, she has a background studying immigration and U.S. border issues. And so we're going to also talk to Dr. Skinner about that, an issue that's really been very pertinent for almost a decade now um, as a major, um, you know, interest, particularly of the Republican primary electorate. Um, But until then, we've got issues to discuss. And speaking of the Republican primary electorate, um, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, there has been poll after poll taken with those two head-to-head and then throwing in some other folks like Mike Pence and Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, some running, some not yet running. But um, it's a really interesting developing race where um, Donald Trump started out maybe looking weaker than someone that had been the party's nominee two elections in a row, um, had um, won the you know electoral college once, um, you know, would normally be, although this is a weird position. We had somebody, you know, try to strive to be the nominee three times in a row uh, since Franklin Roosevelt. Um, But he was in a bit of a weaker position, and that was several months ago. He had this rollout of his campaign. It was, to paraphrase his, um, you know, assessment of Jeb Bush, low energy. Um, But since then... Uh, after that, um, you know, really pretty poor rollout, his campaign has slowly gathered a little bit of momentum. And Ron DeSantis' campaign, which had started out, and I guess he's not officially announced, but the shadow campaign had a lot of momentum. It's really stalled in recent weeks. Um, Tim, would you say that assessment is accurate or inaccurate? No, I would I would say that that is rather accurate. It, it, Trump did uh, have a low key uh, rollout. He wasn't raising money well. Uh, there wasn't a lot of energy in it, and it seemed like this was the opening for DeSantis, and uh, that seems to have reversed itself. Uh, even the polling is showing Trump gaining in some momentum. In uh, recent weeks, so I'd say you about hit the nail on the head there. Catherine, I have not laid this on a calendar, but in a crazy way, it seemed like you know he rolled out the, the campaign right after the really poor or we'll at least say uneven results in the midterm for Republicans. Um, he uh, – Herschel Walker didn't do well in the campaign. Trump had all this negativity. Then Trump released those NFT cards, which were roundly mocked by seemingly not only the left, but even some people on the right. But at some point, that almost seemed to be the nadir. It was kind of like he actually bounced back around the time of those NFT cards, which would make just no sense because those cards were just weird, to be honest. Um did you kind of feel the same timeline? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't recognize that timeline. I 
my reaction was that I, I felt like he was, he being um, Trump, was uh, responding to the enthusiastic, somewhat enthusiastic response that DeSantis was getting, and that riled him up, and so that, you know, revved up his sort of energy and uh, attacks on DeSantis. But Yeah, and I think I think you're right. Trump, you know, he comes in many ways from the world of pro wrestling. I mean, he never was a wrestler, but he actually, for some strange reasons in the WWE Hall of Fame, um, he likes to have the um, hero-villain dynamic. Now, for many folks, he might be the villain, um, but <laughs> he likes that dynamic, and so he has to have the foil. So I think you're right about that. Um, Tim, what do you identify as the reason that Trump, if he hasn't gained popularity, popularity, he stopped losing popularity at worst? No, I he he's gaining. Uh, I, I'm sitting here right now looking at the latest morning consult poll. He's up to an 18-point lead on DeSantis. That race was single digits just just a little while back. Um, perhaps some attention was focused on the race a little more when Nikki Haley in, uh, entered it and then uh, – fellow by the name of Vivek Ramaswamy, I'll be honest with you, I'd never even heard of him uh, until he entered the race. Uh, I I, I guess he's a tech real estate guy or something like that. Um, But, uh, and and then with the approach of CPAC and and all the uh, stuff surrounding it, Started uh, started focusing a little bit more on what's going on in the Republican Party, and you know as we'll get into in a moment that 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 favors Trump that 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 party I think still his but we'll, we'll we'll get into that in a moment but I cannot point to a seminal moment that it happened. Yes. Um, now let's go to the flip side of this coin. Um, and this is not a buy-sell-hold because he has not entered the race officially, but he definitely has a shadow campaign going on. Um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is clearly in double digits. Um, I think he's been as high as in maybe the low 40s. Um, he's probably over 20 in every poll. Tim, is that range about correct for his polling numbers in the last yeah, around, several around, months? Yeah, around 30, around 30 according to the primary trimat, uh, tracker with morning consult. Yeah, so he's at least over 30 and even the worst polls. So he, he's, you know, a substantial figure in this race. But he seems to be stalling, even though he continues to make news and the way that he likes to make news, and the way that the Republican uh, electorate likes a lot of their politicians to make news by, you know, doing things to get headlines to infuriate people that are progressive, that are, you know, in the center to left of center. Um, but he is. He's not gained any more momentum. I mean, you would think as people learned about him, he would probably gain momentum, but he just hasn't. Uh, Catherine, any ideas why he's kind of stalled right now? Um, well, I, I think, you know, there's a lot going on in the world, number one. So uh, I'm not sure people are thinking about the 2024 election as much as, you know, we are and us inside baseball people are. And also um, there's quite a bit of negative stuff being Said, not just about him, but about Florida. Um, and I wonder if it's all just sort of um, not getting sorted out in the proper way to, you know, give him the attention that we might expect. And also, you know, I mean, Trump is, you have to, you know, when you're covering stories and, newspaper or on TV or on the radio or even on a podcast, 
you have to make decisions every time about what you cover and what you don't. And Trump is is popular and exciting, and so he may be getting more attention <laughs> than we might expect. The, some of the attention that we might expect DeSantis to get. Yes, Tim. Same kind of question. You know, why has well, Ron DeSantis, you know, not uh, continuing to gain after an initial appearance that seemed like he might? Well, he, here's a thought. What voters is Ron DeSantis trying to appeal to? Well, it can't be the not Trump crowd. That, that's certainly not him because he. He could be Donald Trump only without the bluster and all that. The MAGA crowd likes him just fine. But you know what? If they got a choice between him and Trump, I think they showed this weekend that that, that they're with Donald Trump. They are not with DeSantis. I mean, the CPAC straw poll, Trump 62 and DeSantis 20, they showed clearly who they're with. So... Which voters is it that Ron DeSantis is going to get if he can't get Trump's voters away from Trump? He doesn't have a lane to get into. He doesn't have a way to move forward. Uh, That's a really good point. It belongs to Donald Trump. I'll be honest. Right now, I I don't believe there's a race. Do you all see it? I am very surprised that, 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 that there is less of a race. I agree with you. It, there's not the race there should be. Um, and, and it goes back to the point that I may have made on the show, and I know I've told y'all, if you're somebody that you believe that Trump you know, really won the popular vote in 2016, that in 2020 that he had the election stolen because he really won states like Arizona and Georgia and my goodness, they probably claim they won Washington, D.C. They're so delusional. And you stormed the Capitol on January 6th because Donald Trump was wronged, and you know Mike Pence is a traitor because he didn't overturn the election. And you believe all this, and all the polls are showing a sizable chunk of the Republican Party believes everything I just said. Then if you reject Donald Trump, then you're saying you're wrong about all that. Joe Biden really did win. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. The election was free and fair. Nobody should have stormed the Capitol. Mike Pence did the right thing. You're saying that all of that's correct. And so if you're not if you're going to admit all that, then you're not a good Republican. So you can't replace Donald Trump because Donald Trump has been wronged. And so therefore, until the Republican Party, the fever dream breaks. And they're willing to admit all of those things that I said are just false and nonsense, then they can't move on from Donald Trump. Is that, Catherine, is that the way you see it? I, I think that's excellent. It's a sort of a psychological, you know, it's like they, 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 they're tied to him and even, and they, and they can't admit any failure. So. I think that's an excellent point. Yeah, Tim, I mean, what what would cause the Republicans to move from Donald Trump and um, on to a different candidate? I don't see anything that's going to cause it this year. There's one thing you left out of that list of things that they would have to discount. They... All, the, the most loyal Trump voters would have to come to the conclusion that Donald Trump cannot possibly get elected next year. And they are just not there. They're not going to be there. 35 to 40 percent of that party is right with him, right to the bitter end. No questions asked. No wavering. That following is in lockstep. They are loyal they are in positions of prominence in all of these state parties. They are in positions of prominence in the Republican National Committee. There's a bunch of them in Congress already endorsing Trump. 
uh, these people are with Donald Trump. You, we, you both saw what happened at CPAC. The, the GOP base, they're with Trump right now. I mean, look at who was there. It was all Trump and his people speaking, and who wasn't there? DeSantis avoided it. Uh, the head of the, uh, uh, of the Republican National Committee even avoided Mitch McConnell wasn't there. They talked to a vendor in the lobby, the biggest vendor there, who was selling uh, souvenirs of all the candidates and, and non-candidates, and he said forever uh, item that somebody bought with DeSantis's name on it. There was 20 bought with Trump's name. Oh, my gosh. Y'all, you saw this thing that you sent to me, David, about about them interviewing the people in the restaurant. Yes. And they could not find anybody in a restaurant in Florida that favored DeSantis over Trump in Florida. No, he... I just I don't see it, guys. I, I I may I may have to admit later on that I'm wrong. There is a race for the nomination, but right now I just don't see it. I'm sorry. Yes, Catherine, that clip was not only a restaurant in Florida. That clip was a restaurant in Ron DeSantis's old congressional district, um, a place <laughs> where he's been on the ballot for multiple cycles now. Um, I know I sent you the clip, and I think it's been played everywhere. I'll go ahead and tell you, Hagen Goddard and Chris Reback did a short podcast on Friday where the center of it was talking about the Republican primary in one clip and talked about that Fox News clip with Brian Kilmeade. Um, Catherine, I mean, let's not even talk about CPAC. Let's just talk about that restaurant in Ron DeSantis's uh, old congressional district. How bad a sign is that for him? That's pretty bad. (laughs) I mean, I think we've all said it. It's Trump's party. And um, I think, I just don't think people, I mean, we've seen, we've all seen the polls. He's head and shoulders above everyone. I mean, DeSantis is second, but not close. So I, I don't know why anybody's surprised. Uh, and and like I said, I mean, DeSantis is getting a lot of bad ink in Florida, too. Well, I mean, I think he's getting a lot of bad ink from folks that think like us, that think his quixotic well, campaign against Disney is, is just nonsense. His you have to register to be a you know write about him on blogs. It's just um, probably a total infringement of the First Amendment, um, but but it may not be bad ink within the CPAC crowd, the the, the Republican diner crowd. I'm not sure. Hmm. I, 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 yeah, don't we'll see. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not in Florida to read the newspaper. Or to see the reaction that people have. Um, I know that uh, if I mean, I, obviously, I I have my opinions about him, but seems to be a lot of social, um, you know, very narrow um, matters that they're looking at in the legislature, and I'm sure there's people suffering in Florida because of all the things: healthcare, jobs, and economics, all of it. So I mean I think I think we underestimate how exhausted people get. I mean we talked about it a couple of weeks ago about how your ordinary American citizen voter really wants the government to govern and if they're not if they're focusing on these narrow um topics it's frustrating. So it could be that. I don't know. No. I, and I think a lot of – and I'm going to have the final point right now on, on Ron DeSantis. I think one thing that he is buoyed by is Florida is a nice, warm state with good weather, with good locations to live at. And people are moving there because Florida is Florida. Florida has been Florida for thousands of years as far as you know its climate, its temperature, and whatnot. 
and it's been what it is for decades now, far before long before Ron, Ron DeSantis showed up. And I think he's benefiting from that and has nothing to do with these goofy policies of his. But that's why he can point to, oh, Florida's growing and Florida has people. Yeah, but it would have it almost <laughs> across the board with anybody in the political <laughs> spectrum. Well, I want to go yeah. ahead and um, move up north a little bit and talk to our guest for the first time coming on the show, Dr. Isabel Skinner. Welcome, Dr. Skinner. Hello, welcome. Um, thank you so much for having me. Nice to meet you all. Yes, nice to meet you. Well, Dr. Skinner, I've told where you're from, but that's where you're from from the past, I guess, this school year maybe. Um, just start off with a little bit about your biography. You can talk politics, career, wherever you're from, whatever you want to talk about. Definitely. So I am newer to Illinois. This is my first year teaching. I'm an assistant professor at the politics, uh, of Politics and International Affairs here in Springfield at the University of Illinois Springfield, um, so the state capital in Illinois. Uh, but I received my Ph.D. from the University of Arizona out in Tucson, and I'm originally from Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, so you went from you grew up in one swing state, moved to another swing state, and then you moved to a state that, if it becomes a swing state, it's going to be quite a shock to our political system. I'll take it. Right, it <laughs> would definitely. It's definitely been a journey through lots of different types of systems, and I've gotten to live in four different U.S. states and now three different regions. I've also lived abroad in Argentina. Um, and it's all informed the kind of work that I do. So I study American politics, but I mostly focus on minority politics and immigration and refugee uh, issues. Yes, and we're going to get to those in just a little bit. Um, now, when you were talking to me, uh, just one more thing about your bio. You said you had worked in some political campaigns, I believe, back in North Carolina or some you know, day-to-day -day politics. We know that's not what you do as a career, but just tell us about that experience. Yeah, so um, growing up in Charlotte, I was able to be involved in some, you know, protest campaigns, shuffling seat, and I uh, worked for a campaign as an on-the-ground organizer in 2016. Um, and I'm really proud that through nonpartisan voter registration, so my team, like myself and volunteers that I organized, we registered over 500 people to vote in North Carolina in 2016. Yes. Well, I may come back with some more questions, but I just kind of got this thing started. But I know Catherine's going to talk a decent amount about your background, your expertise in immigration and border issues and those politics surrounding those. And then Tim's going to talk to us a little bit about the Chicago mayoral race. No, you're not in Chicago, but it's just like Tim and I are north of Atlanta, and we know what goes on with Atlanta politics because it, it influences the whole state. Same thing with Illinois and Chicago. And then when it comes back to me, I may throw in a few little things. So I'm going to pass it to Catherine. Hey, thank you so much for being with us tonight, Professor. We really Hello. appreciate it. And I hope you're liking Springfield. Isn't that uh, Lincoln? Isn't that Lincoln country? Oh, yes. It's Mr. Lincoln's hometown. You can't miss That's it for thought, a single yeah. minute. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't ever let you forget it. Um, no. I wanted to talk about um, immigration and, all, and sort of where, um, how we're failing and I noticed in your, I looked at your profile on um, the university website and said that you also are interested in communications and messaging and stuff like that. So yeah. how are we failing to reach um, immigrant voters? So uh, these are people who have been here long enough to become U.S. citizens and are now voters. And how are we failing? Because I feel like that's what's happened. Like, um, uh, from uh, in both parties, like we we just don't seem to be able to engage them enough to be really interested in voting, and I'm just wondering if that's a failure in communication or if if you have any thoughts about that. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So we do know that um, I'm also, you know, interested in demographics and voting, and we know that in terms of sheer demographics, uh, Latino Americans and Asian Americans, many of whom, but of course not all of whom have had immigration experiences, uh, turn out in fewer numbers overall. But I think that, you know, one of the keys to communicating is communicating to people in the language that they speak and are comfortable in. And, you know, you can only imagine how many languages that um, could include. Also, I think that because of the misperceptions um, about immigration in particular, it can be really alienating to people who have been, um, I would say, wrongfully uh, portrayed in a way that, um, you know, that can be really socially isolating um, and, and disincentivizing for people to get involved. Um, though I will say there are also many immigrants who are really excited to participate. I even had some volunteers when I was working on the campaign who were um, Haitian refugees, for example, who were not able to vote themselves, but were really excited to register other people to vote. So. I think we see a lot of younger folks, um, you know, second generation um, immigrants, uh, with folks with immigrant parents really getting involved. But uh, it is true that especially for older people who are naturalizing maybe through a different process that, yeah, we don't see the same level of turnout that we might hope to see for those groups. Yeah, I had the um, really special pleasure of um attending a, a citizenship swearing-in ceremony, you know, where they wrangle a couple hundred people in and they swear them all in. And I was working yeah, with well, the League of Women Voters, and they do um, voter registration at those um, swearing-ins. And it was so exciting because they were all so excited about getting registered to vote. But that is not part of the normal process. Like, it's not a automatic step in that day right. of getting, which is ridiculous. I mean, why isn't it? Uh, that's a whole other story. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, do you think that there's also, I've always thought that um, when we talk to um, what I call, I guess we call new American voters that, and, and to um, Latinx and Hispanic voters, who are already here that have, you know, been here sometimes for generations that we tend to focus on immigration and language matters when a lot of times it's not, those aren't their top issues. Like we put them in a, we put all, everybody who's Hispanic or Latinx in a, in a box and we say, okay, these are the issues that they're concerned about. But, I mean, if you've been here for a couple generations, you're just as concerned about property values and economics and home values and education and health care, maybe more than immigration. Maybe your whole family is already here. You're not, I mean, you're, not that you're not interested in it, but it's not a priority for you. So how do right. we, how do we manage that? I just feel like, there must be a way that we can reach them and get them better engaged. And I, I don't know what that well, is. Well, <laughs> I would definitely agree with you that there is a problem of treating particularly Latinx and, and Asian voters as monolithic, and that is, does not square with the reality or with the scholarship that says that pan-ethnic uh, classifications can really erase a lot of the nuance that we need. You know, people's ethnic backgrounds or national, na nationality backgrounds really seem to matter in terms of public opinion and what issues are the most important. Um, and so I think it's important to reach out on issues like language and immigration, but that's not going to be the top concern for, you know, all Latino or, or um, Asian voters. I think we've seen the Republican Party be very sophisticated in the last election in terms of very like nuanced campaigning, attempting to turn out more conservative Latinos in, in Florida, for example, um, who may come from a different background. But also uh, there's been efforts from 
you know, first and second generation combinations of folks like in Arizona, we can see clearly younger younger people are getting really involved. And it, it's impossible to overlook the power that um, the Latino population has in Arizona uh, politics, which, you know, Arizona politics becomes national nationally important. But also here in Illinois, you know, I think it's really clear to see that um, multiracial, multi-issue uh, campaigning is important because you don't want to make assumptions um, and lump everybody together. Uh, and also, you have to be able to speak to different groups of people. Otherwise, it's not possible to be successful. Yeah, the, all those are great issues and are great points. And thank you so much for that. And I'm now going to pass it to Tim. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Good, good evening, Dr. Skinner. Uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, I'd like to turn... Uh, our attention to the city north of you there. Um, as you know, they had a mayoral election, and the first question out of the box is, why was uh, Mayor Lightfoot so soundly rejected by voters? Yes, absolutely. I think that, you know, the word on the street here in Illinois is essentially that Nationally, we might be surprised to see a um, an incumbent not uh, receive re-election like Lori Lightfoot, especially because her victory was also so resounding uh, four years ago. However, within the context of Chicago and Illinois, it's uh, probably less of a shock because I like to think of this as more of a descriptive versus substantive kind of representation story. So. Um, Lori Lightfoot was a descriptive, uh, you know, history-making candidate and mayor because she was the first black female mayor, the first openly gay mayor of Chicago. Um, But, you know, for substantive representation, the representation that you feel your leaders doing what you ask them, want them to do – Well, she campaigned on a very progressive agenda, uh, but right away, I think a lot of folks said, hey, this is not what we talked about in terms of the actual style uh, of governance that was received in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Was crime an overriding issue in the race? Yeah, so I would say that crime is the top issue, most salient issue for Chicagoans right now. And both of the candidates who are going into the runoff are really concerned about crime. But I think it's really interesting that they're going completely, totally different directions with this. So um, so I'd love to talk about, you know, what they – what their stances are, but then also how I believe that squares up with the scholarship. So um, Paul Vallis, who is one of the folks who earned the most votes in the initial race, um, he is a Democrat but uh, is cast around here as though he is a conservative Republican because that is kind of an Illinois thing. And um, he is running a tough-on-crime kind of public safety higher, more police messaging while, uh, and he is a white male candidate, by the way. And meanwhile, Mm -hmm. Brandon Johnson, who is the most progressive candidate running, um, is, has been endorsed by the teachers union. And his message uh, is about restructuring funding to the police. So not necessarily defunding, but sort of changing the structure so that crime is addressed through foundational issues. Uh, so that's a really different style of approaching the problem. But if, if you're interested, I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of my scope on crime in general, because I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on crime in Chicago, but I do have a little bit of insight on political science about crime in general. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, and, so, and I'm going I'm gonna give you a lead in question with that. Okay. And that is this. Should national Democrats be paying attention 
to the crime mm. issue, as strong an issue as it has been in this race in Chicago? And I'll let you start with it. Yes, yes, that is such a good way to put it. Well, I would say that, unfortunately, I think from um, kind of an outsider perspective, uh, I would say that as as a researcher it, and a citizen, that I think it is um, normatively, objectively a bad thing, the way in which policing and crime have become so politicized to the extent uh-huh. in which the actual solutions that might be helpful to people that are, you know, experiencing the tragedy of unsafety. Like, I mean, this is an issue we all have to care about, but the fact that these approaches are so polar opposite, I find a little bit alarming because that's just not what the data says is the right approach. The data suggests that the right approach is probably more of a combination of all of these different things that is very much more sensitive to geography and history. And, you know, it's not just about the number of police, it's about how the police are interacting with citizens on a daily basis to inspire trust rather than to have trust eroded. So I personally am kind of affronted by this, like, you have to, like, if you, if you are concerned by the police that you're anti-police. Well, that's not a good way to look at it. Also, if you live in a neighborhood that experiences crime, well, you must love crime. You know, that's terrible. That's a terrible way to cast people, and it's just leading to division. So that's kind of my take would be, yeah, I think that both parties need to, Democrats certainly do not need to, to um, allow the narrative to be Democrats do not care about crime. That, that would certainly be problematic. However, I think that, you know, I'm, I am kind of low in terms of my optimism and, and the fact that it seems like these issues are so politicized now, uh, it's hard to see areas of compromise. Yeah. Now, the the Democrats are charged uh, a lot, and, and and even and even more so as political season approaches again in 2024 as being quote soft on crime. Uh, yes. Do you think those attacks work? Are they destructive to the country? Or what, what's your take there? That's a fantastic question. Well, you, you, you already know that I'm interested in communication. So I one of the things I'm most interested in is when the communication just runs absolutely contrary to the facts on the ground. So when my world, there's this idea about crimigration. So that's when all immigrants are, are you know, painted with this brush of crime and criminality but the data shows that there is no connection, and actually, in fact, it seems like immigrant uh, citizens, or, or I'm sorry, immigrant residents, um, or you know, naturalized citizens, are actually less less likely to engage in criminal activity in terms of criminality in areas that have a higher concentration of um, immigrant residents uh, have less crime problems. But of course, the way that we construct these problems and talk about them is is critical. But, you know, unfortunately, I do think that um, it works to uh, uh, essentially paint, um, to paint candidates or parties as being, uh, to use that type of securitization rhetoric, I think is extremely powerful. That's what I found in my research as well in terms of support mm-hmm. for uh, refugee policies. Mm-hmm. Final question, back to Chicago. Um, do you have a sense of who's going to win the mayoral runoff there? I don't have a great sense right now. I think that we did see a little bit of um, disorganization in terms of the progressive vote. Uh, in this first round. So I think it will depend on whether or not progressives are able to uh, coalesce and then also the types of endorsements that the candidates might 
receive going forward um, because demographics is always going to be a big story in Chicago politics because the city um, has a more even split among the uh, black, white, and Latino populations. However, you know, demographics is not destiny, and so there needs to be at least the promises of substantive representation. But also, you know, as we've seen with Lori Lightfoot, if those promises are not fulfilled, then we might see another one-term mayor. Well, I thank you for that, and with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes, well, Dr. Skinner, I've got just a quick follow-up question or two about both topics. Um, On the mayoral race of Chicago, um, Mayor Lightfoot, um, one thing I noticed that um, made news outside of Chicago was the um, Chicago Bears and them possibly leaving downtown. And I know this is kind of some inside baseball, but I know in Atlanta – Mayor Reed, um, Kasim Reed had been, you know, mayor, and then he decided not to run. Now he had uh, the Braves had moved out of um, Atlanta proper to just over the Cobb County line, outside of the city limits, and he took some criticism. Although he did, um, you know, establish a new stadium for the Falcons and United, and then he also, I think, they refurbished um, um, the Hawks Arena during the same time. But, but he was criticized some for that. Um, the Bears are obviously, you know, a really big entity in Chicago, one of the oldest football teams in pro football. How much um, do you think that issue hurt her? Do you have any idea on that? I, I, about the extent, I'm not too sure, but I would definitely say not to overlook it. I have heard this said, and I think that it, it – probably matters, you know, something like that. Um, my grandmother lives in Marietta in Cobb County, in, you know, outside of Atlanta. So I do know about that situation as well, and that was a whole to-do. And so I do think that there is a similar um, comparison here where, you know, that has a lot of economic impact, um, and I think that uh, there is sort of a pride aspect to that as well. I am certainly nobody's uh, sports fan or, or informed about that type of thing. But I think that, you know, all of these decisions um, can have an impact. And uh, I think that Lori Lightfoot was struggling with opposition from all corners because um, her progressive backing you know, again, I can't stress that she won a resounding victory before. So her progressive backing started to crack. But then, of course, you, the, to the extent in which there is a, you know, conservative challenge in Chicago, um, of course, that matters as well. So it's, I think it's a, a tough gig, you know. I And so uh, best of luck to uh, whoever wins the mayor's race. Yes, and one more question, different candidate. When I first heard about the mail race would be close, I think a lot of people thought that Congressman Chewy Garcia would be the main opponent. That was the narrative um, several weeks ago, definitely several months ago, and then seemingly something happened. He finished third. Um, He did apparently win a lot of boxes in his congressional district, but do you have any idea why his – campaign didn't live up to the billing um, that it initially received, at least outside of the city? Yeah, so I think he finished, I think he finished after um, former, or or I guess current Mayor Lightfoot, and so I think what happened, what I've heard is that his campaign was a little bit later in its formation, and so um, his main opponent would really be Brandon Johnson, whose coalition was, was secured uh, a lot uh, longer ago, particularly from the impact of the teachers' union. Um, endorsement was a, a very big deal. Education is also a key issue in Chicago. But I think that, you know, uh, Chuy Garcia, uh, you know, ran a, a good campaign and we'll see where his endorsement potentially could go. I think that, you know, since um, Latino Chicagoans are not going to have the chance to be descriptively 
uh, represented with a Latino mayor that um, it, we're going to have to see how the candidates make promises about how they're still going to reach out to this community and substantively support them um, because their vote is essential to whoever wins the mayoral race. Yes. Now, the, uh, I did have a question on immigration issues and in, in, in the U.S. border. Um, I, I certainly yeah. want to preface this. I certainly don't think we can discuss a plan because that's super complicated and that takes books, not not a short interview. But I want to go back to around 2014 when you had you know President Obama and you had Marco Rubio, Republican senator from Florida. Right. They were talking. They were working together. You had Republicans and Democrats that could talk, and that's kind of how the Dream Act came about. And and, and there was some you know you know cohesion where you could at least have a dialogue. Then of course there was a backlash in the Republican primary. And since, ever since then, and, and I think a lot of that you know, led to the rise of Donald Trump and, and where the Republican Party is today, it seems like we're nowhere close to even a conversation. How do you think we get right. back to the point where we at least can have a conversation in which um, we're all you know, having a dialogue um, to where enough people across the government can pass some kind of plan? I I wish I I wish I had the the answer to this million dollar question, but I do have thoughts which are we've got to remember you know living in Arizona I feel like I'd be remiss if we didn't also mention John McCain uh, and his efforts in in a bipartisan immigration plan. Um, however, I think that the scholarship shows us that. This is kind of modern history, right? This is very contemporary history. But the scholarship shows us that Republicans, including Rubio, who uh, and including other figures um, like John McCain, who even attempted to discuss a bipartisan plan, uh, those Republican leaders were burned for that, right? They that they were no go. Um, Rubio kind of completely transformed his his uh, his. Is discussion of this. Um, so it was either transform completely your ideas or um, that's not what we want to do anymore in terms of Republicans. And it's a similar story, although I will say that a lot of Democrats have much more mainstream ver- visions and versions of immigration than um, folks that are uh, more closely tied to the immigration advocacy world would like to see. So um, as somebody who studies immigration, I would say that there's not actually a lot of representation in leadership or in Congress or in the presidency um, that enacts a vision that folks who are a a lot more progressive on immigration issues would like to see. So, uh, you know, that's not a good answer because that's basically saying that the polarization is probably even deeper than we realize on this issue. But as somebody who studies communication, that's definitely because the way we talk about it is like two completely different universes. And, you know, that is tough. I mean, as somebody who is an expert on this, I would say people talk about how dangerous the border is. And I agree, it's certainly dangerous. But I believe that it's dangerous for the people who have made the desperate decision to cross the border. And I could talk all day long about, you know, why that is, but uh, it's just really interesting because I think that folks that are really close on the border, they have a very different vision of this than we get at the national level. Yes. We know that's such a fascinating issue. We want to reserve the right to have you back sometime in the future um, to talk, you know, border issues and politics, particularly if something comes up. And then, who knows, there may be some more races in Illinois up where you're living now um, that are pertinent. So before you leave us, Dr. Skinner, we want folks to be able to read your work or connect with you. So if you have social media handles, if you're publishing somewhere that folks can have access to, you know, don't give them Galileo and Eric codes, you know, know, but let us know where people can find your work. Yeah, definitely. So uh, you can look me up on the directory of University of Illinois Springfield. I've got a little platform there. Um, That's my public-facing website. I do have published work. Uh, One that is publicly available would be 
in the American Journal, uh, uh, the American Journal, I'm sorry, what was it? American Political Science Review, APSR, um, and that piece is called how, let me, i got to look up my own stuff, because you know how it is. They have all these complicated uh, complicated titles and everything. So, But I, I am published in one of the uh, premier journals uh, for political science, so I'm relatively proud of that. Um, but uh, I've got a new piece out. It's called The Competing Influence of Policy Content and political cues, cross-border evidence from the United States and Canada, and that's in the American Political Science Review published uh, last year in 2022. But thank you so much for asking. I'd love to be back and talk with you all more. I really enjoyed the conversation today. We did as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Isabel Skinner, University of Illinois, Springfield. Um, you know, you could tell expert in immigration, border issues. And, and we kind of, you know, got a little uh, Chicago mayoral race information. That is a, a very interesting mayoral race. Any of the major cities in America, um, you know, that's one of the highlights of odd-year politics. Um, well, let's go ahead. Even though we were discussing, you know, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and what have you, we – we got a pretty good point on that, and I want to move to another topic that we've been trying to talk about for a week or two now. And just about – it's been about two weeks ago now. Uh, Marjorie Taylor, a congressman, congresswoman from northwest Georgia, she made the comment that America needs a national divorce, that red states and blue states just need to separate from each other. Um, she made these comments actually after actually she said that if somebody moves from a blue state to a red state, and I wonder vice versa, from a blue state to a red state, or I'm sorry, a blue state, red state to a blue state, or whatever, you get to, you don't get to vote for a period of time, which is also just completely um, anti-democracy. Um, but she makes these really outlandish comments. Um, Tim, uh, what was your latest thoughts on? Uh, the, are your thoughts on this latest comment of hers? You know, uh, in general, I, I think she makes these kinds of comments um, for two reasons. I think that she wants to be a power player in the present incarnation of the U.S. House Republican Caucus, which apparently she now is. And uh, she says these sorts of things, and she becomes the media darling of the right-wing media with the appearances on Fox News and One America and Newsmax and, and the others. And she's, you know, as as a member of Congress who is just now into their second term from a very conservative district in northwest Georgia, uh, which otherwise nobody would notice her. She is uh, on everyone's lips. That's, that's, That's what she wants. That's why she says some of this stuff. Now, I'm not saying she doesn't believe it. I, I, I really hope she doesn't believe that that it's a good idea to advocate secession. I will tell you this. The far-right MAGA crowd right now, 56% of Republican voters in the 11 states of the old Confederacy favor exactly what she just advocated leaving the union. So the idea is very popular with her voters. I'll leave it there for y'all to expound on. Catherine, Tim gave you his theory. I'm going to give you my theory. My theory is I don't think she has a lot of understanding or use for democracy. She wants what she wants and her hardcore supporters want. And if that means people will vote for it, fine. If that means she just has to ram it through, 
through dictatorial tactics, fine. Additionally, I do genuinely believe that she thinks Democrats and progressive people are evil. They're inherently evil, and they're bad, and they must be stopped. I, I don't think she's that calculating. I think something a little different than Tim. We've laid out two visions. You can hurt my feelings. I'm sure you can hurt Tim's feelings. What do you think? Well, I think she's crazy, but, you know, there's, that's, <laughs> that's that. Um, I think there's probably a little bit of both. Um, I, I think the bigger question is, um, or the the question I would like to ask her is, why would you want to do that when the blue states pay all the taxes? I mean, when you look at the where the money comes from, it comes from, the West Coast and the East Coast and, you know, Chicago and um, and used to be Detroit, but not as so much anymore. So uh, if we got rid of if, – if we separated, uh, I think the red states would suffer a lot more than the blue states. Um, but the whole idea is ridiculous because – I mean, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. But I do think it's, part of it is um, that she likes to get attention. But I do think that, I do think that these are um, – I think she, there's very little depth to her. So she doesn't think um, – she's not interested in governing. So she doesn't think about what this would mean. It just sounds good. It sounds like, yeah, we need to, you know, rid our state of these libtards and um, don't let them vote. And when they, when they move into the red states, you know, I, I think um, again, I mean, I mentioned this before when we were talking to um, our guest, I just think people are tired. They, we want people, we want government, we want healthcare, we want, you know, fair, more, uh, more equity and economics. We want houses that we can afford. We want education that our kids can, where our kids can thrive. Not just our kids, our whole, our whole society can thrive. So I think the sooner we can, the sooner our elected officials understand that, all of them, the better off we'll all be. Catherine, in 16 years of the kudzu vine, there may never have been a truer understatement ever uttered. There's very little depth to her. I mean, that, that sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it sounds like we're all near the same page. But, but you know, what's funny is, is I hearken back to our guest. You know how she kept saying, um, the research says. And, Catherine, you're talking about the facts and the figures and who pays the taxes and how things right. get funded. She probably either thinks that, you know, that's just a, a conspiracy and a plot. When you use facts and figures, I mean, I bet when they bring the OMB book, the Office of Budget Management, um, to her, she runs the other way, like it's, um, you know, some well, kind of pagan, uh, you know, sacrifice or something. She just <laughs> doesn't want anything that has any intellectual depth. She probably can't handle it. She's probably suspicious of it, um, and so. The the thing is, is this is what's really, really so sad, is there have been gadflies, really I guess you could say from both parties, but in more recent years, from the Republican side of the aisle, but they don't necessarily get to be the leaders. Somehow she has moved up in leadership when she is one of the two or three most unfit people in the House of Representatives. I mean – her, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, and of course, we don't know what's going on with George Santos. I mean, you know, that's the short list of the people that are completely unfit, um, you know, to be in Congress. And she's, you know, got the ear and leadership um, pull from the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. It's just a really sad state of affairs. Uh, Tim, I'm going to have the last word on this, and I'm going to preview next week's show. Yeah, well, you 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 said it there at the end about Kevin McCarthy. 
he desperately had to have a certain amount of votes to be elected speaker. He had to make deals with these people. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene saddled right up beside him very early in the process, stayed right with him, presented herself as a deal maker uh, and, and all of this good stuff. And and he he had to make deals with her. He had to make deals with some of the others that are just like it. These people now are in a position of prominence in the Republican House caucus because the speaker's very job depends on staying in their good graces. And so they're going to hold a lot of sway, guys. That's just the way it's going to be until at least until the elections next year. Yes. Well, we want to again thank Dr. Isabel Skinner for coming on the show. And next week we've got a really exciting show. Uh, one of our favorite and most frequent guests, uh, Wendy Davis, is going to come back on and join us. And we have planned to talk with Wendy about the proposed new DNC calendar and, you know, how that's laying out, what are the odds that, you know, it actually comes to or which parts may come to fruition. We may talk about some other topics as well with Wendy, but that's going to be the core because, like I said the other week, we really have not spent the time we need to. And then I said, who better than DNC member Wendy Davis to come in and tell us all about that? So until next week, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Not everybody. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic.